Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I am sex and intimacy coach Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. Hey, friends. There's a silly old game where if you combine the name of your first pet and the childhood street you grew up on, you'll get your porn star name. Or in another variation, your grandmother's first name and the last thing you ate. I'm sure there are a million of these. But what if you got to choose your own porn star name? Today's guest got to do exactly that. And she bypassed streets and foods and colors and went straight for the good stuff. Sin. Literally. Her name is Sin, with two N's, Sage. And if you believe that all sex work is inherently coercive and abusive, Sin is about to blow your mind. She decided at age 13 that she wanted to be a stripper because she loved the idea of being naked while people watched her dance. She turned that teenage fantasy into an adult reality, and she's done it all. Stripping, porn, camming, and more. Today, she creates, produces, and markets her own porn. And because she's the one in charge, there is nothing abusive or coercive about how she chooses to use her body. She is an all-around businesswoman, and her uniform is her birthday suit. This is a long conversation that is filled to the brim with goodness, so let's dive in. Sin is a 39-year-old cisgender female who says that she's a little bit gender fluid, but is still happy using she-her pronouns. She describes herself as white, queer, monogamous, and married. She describes her body as slim, thick. I'm so pleased to introduce Sin. Sin, I am so excited to have you on the show today. I love talking to people who are in the sex work industry. I think it's so vitally important that we normalize this work yes. and, <laughs> and let people know that all of the mythology that they hear about sex workers is complete bunk. So thank you for being here. Oh, it's uh, such an absolute pleasure for me. Um, I actually heard about you on the Savage Love Cast, which Ooh. I listened to every single episode of. And when I heard what you were doing and talking about, I came immediately to you. I, I, I wanted to be a guest for sure, but just because I love what your goal is and, and you know, what you're pushing for um, and striving towards. And like, to me, that's such important work, um, the normalization of all kinds of things about sexuality. And so I, 
I'm just so honored to be able to participate. I really, really am. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, I start every interview in the same place, which is what is your first memory of sexual pleasure? So I think, you know, memories are interesting and fuzzy. Yeah. But I, the, one of the first things I remember is first grade and their swing sets with metal poles. And mm. some of the metal poles are kind of an angle. And they were just perfect to grab onto and try to do the challenge of getting all the way to the top. <laughs> and I would just remember that, like, as I was approaching the top of this pole, it was a very intense feeling of pleasure. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And did you do that a lot? Like, once you discovered the feeling, did you go back and try to get it again and again? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. How far did you get into the pleasure cycle at six years old? Did you come to something you would recognize as an orgasm now? Oh, yes. I mean, that was definitely, uh, that was definitely an orgasm I was having for mm. sure. And then it actually expanded from there a little bit because in first grade, I did meet <laughs> another person my age and we would play outside all the time and we would take turns climbing the the <laughs> pole. And then it kind of like evolved uh, into, I remember there was this thing we used to do. It was with me and this one friend. And then going into second grade, it'd be me and like a couple other friends. Mm -hmm. We would uh, sit on the ground, like in front of each other. And then the person in front would reach back with their hands and basically just kind of like fiddle with the crotchal region, <laughs> <laughs> not really understanding exactly what was happening or what we were doing in any sort of like anatomical sense. Mm -hmm. um, this was like through clothes, but uh, you just kind of fiddle around back there and then we would have orgasms from that. Mm -hmm. Again, like not recognizing at the time that there was such a thing as an orgasm, not knowing really much about what was going on, just knowing that like it, that this felt good for us. And so, yeah. so we would do it because feeling good is nice. <laughs> <laughs> that That's fully understanding too, at the same time that like what we were doing was somewhat shameful that this was something that we were meant to sort of like keep a secret. Like mm -hmm. we were trying to not be caught by an older person perhaps observing us. It yeah. felt like we got away with it, but maybe, maybe teachers and people were just like, just <laughs> let them do their thing. I don't know. <laughs> it's interesting that you weren't face to face, that you were sitting one behind the other and right. putting your hands behind your back. It's like, that is some really complex <laughs> logic for a six-year-old. <laughs> totally agree. I, yeah. I couldn't even remember or tell you how it kind of like came to that, but I definitely remember doing that. Mm. And were all of the people involved in this having clitorises or were there also penises involved? No, no penises. Mm-hmm. Mm -mm. Yeah, all vagina owning children for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and so did this at any point trigger an understanding for you of sex or sexuality or was this just like a fun thing you did with your friends? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think that what triggered sort of that understanding that there was some sexuality happening was that shame we were feeling. I mean, why, why, if we didn't understand that there was something sexual about it or slash shameful about it, like, I, I don't see why we would have tried to hide it and been concerned about being caught and things mm-hmm. like that. So it wasn't like an overwhelming, like darkness of shame or anything. It was just kind of like, we need to keep this little thing that we do as inconspicuous as possible. And then as I grew, I mean, I, I remained friends with the first girl that I had interact with until adulthood. Um, but So there were times when I think more going into like third grade and then fourth grade, I had actually changed schools in the fourth grade, same community, but different elementary school. So that started to happen less and less for sure until it was just kind of like, we don't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Almost like an unspoken kind of thing. And I think too, that I have this memory of one of the other girls sort of saying something to another peer and then that peer being like, so-and-so doesn't want to do that anymore and feeling like, oh, okay, then, you know, that's fine. But like kind of pretending like they never did it and stuff. I remember it being like socially awkward. Hmm. When people started dropping out and you were doing it less and less, was there a sense of loss for you? Did you start to touch yourself at some point in there? Yes. So I started masturbating around age eight with my own hand. Um, I'll never forget being in my room, um, like tr- like starting to f- to go to bed, lights off, I'm going to bed. But, you know, I was a kid, so like doors open. I could hear my parents watching TV in their room. They were watching some kind of a talk show. And the word that really stood out to me was masturbation. So they were like talking on this talk show about masturbation. And this being, this would have been probably 1991 or two. So it was not in a positive way, if I recall correctly. (laughs) Sure. And I remember thinking like what they're talking about somehow sounds like what I'm doing, but that it was like even more shameful, you know, Mm -hmm. so that almost like helped to cement that feeling that this is not something that we do or talk about, you know, but I'd say like, it would be around that time that I also sort of started to do that less with partners. (laughs) Uh I think it was almost like this age where we were kind of, all of us were understanding that this isn't like, you know, a quote unquote appropriate thing to be doing, Mm -hmm. I guess. And Mm -hmm. probably just internalizing that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So you got this message about masturbation sort of secondhand via what your parents were watching. What kind of conversation was there in your home from your parents, whether it's about sex or being female, sexuality in general? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I definitely don't feel that for the most part, I don't feel like I was ever sex shamed or anything like that. And I don't really remember conversations around masturbation. That's for sure. 
And I don't remember like a major sort of sex talk. I remember the very first sex talk. Um, I was definitely five or six and we were watching Look Who's Talking. Uh-huh. The baby movie. Yeah. The movie starts mm-hmm. out with uh, it's like little sperms traveling to the egg and they're <laughs> like talking to each other about who's going to be the one to make it. <laughs> <laughs> and um I think my mom was, you know, she was sitting there pregnant as I'll get out with my younger brother. And I think she was just kind of like, this seems like a good framework to tell my kid how this stuff works. Um And mm-hmm. so it, but it wasn't like how it all works. It was like, here is a very basic. So she goes, those are the little sperm going to find the egg. And I was like, what do you mean? And then she's just like, <laughs> When mommy and daddy love each other very much, <laughs> uh, very sort of standard. Um, and then it was just about like penis goes in vagina and sperm comes out and impregnates the egg. And that's how uh, someone gets pregnant. And I do remember feeling very disgusted by the concept of uh, my dad putting his penis in my mom's vagina. <laughs> Somehow that persists to this day. I don't know. <laughs> I, I feel like that's pretty appropriate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but so there was that sort of basic explanation. There was some attempt at sex education from the school. Um, I think it was more about that. That happened around age nine or 10. And that was definitely more sort of technical things about reproduction and periods and stuff like that. And then I definitely do remember my mom talking to me about virginity being a gift. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but she, you know, she was also very much a feminist. However, I think that she came from the era where it was kind of like sort of men are trying to take advantage of women style of feminism and uh, women are always being objectified by men style of feminism. And so, I think that like now, at, at least for me and a lot of people, when I say feminism, it means something a lot different. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it, too, is that I do believe that it was just, you know, that my mom was sort of indoctrinated in that way. And so when it does come to religion, it's like I never had it pressed upon me. You know, we never were church going folks, not on any regular basis. Um, when I was in like third, fourth, fifth grade, I was curious. I'd be staying the night at other friends' houses on Saturday nights and we'd go to their church the next morning. Mm -hmm. And so I was sort of exploring that. And I think around that time, my mom had really moved beyond Christianity. So it it was never a huge influence into my life. But I think that when we talk about issues like virginity, that's almost, it's just sort of like the societal indoctrination. Mm -hmm. It's become such a part of the story that we tell our daughters, <laughs> yeah, not our sons. <laughs> so it sounds like you had a, I don't even know how you would describe it these days, because normal is not the right word, but you had a mom <laughs> and a dad and a sibling, at least one sibling. And was that a fairly happy family unit for you? That is such a complicated question. So as an adult, it's easier to look back on my upbringing and see I was blessed in 
so many ways. I mean, and I, that continues. But growing up in it, that that doesn't mean that it wasn't uh, painful at the time in a lot of ways and, and really a struggle at the time in a lot of ways. My dad started expressing rage probably not too long after my brother was born. So, you know, I have a lot of really incredible memories of my dad growing up that uh, things about him that really, really encouraging, um, always supporting me to like be a leader and be an individual and be unique and yeah, like enjoy adventure and, and things like that. So those are all just wonderful things that I'm so grateful for. But the rage was extremely difficult at certain times and it kind of got worse as I became a teenager and moved into high school age and stuff like that. We struggled a lot. Um, and we, you know, we, we did some family counseling and stuff, but I, I never really felt that it was very helpful. And my brother got it like the, the worst of it. Um, mm. and so for him, it's, is very traumatic. I mean, I definitely have some like emotional traumas from that period as well. Uh, but I've gone to therapy. I'm, I'm, I'm really introspective. I, I work on myself a lot just from thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like mindfulness and, you know, some Buddhist and stoic concepts. Um, but yeah, my brother had to, you know, and he is a, sci a psychologist. He has a doctor in psychology now. And so mm -hmm. he's done some really intense work on all that stuff. But, um, in so many ways, I mean, we didn't struggle. We had a home. We had clothes. Every year we got new clothes for school. We had food to eat no matter what. And, you know, I was supported emotionally by my family. So, but that doesn't mean there weren't like some major struggles as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so at what point did you start thinking about sex or maybe if not, if not actually sex, at least moving from playing with your own body to wanting to share that with another person? You know, I think puberty, maybe the beginnings of puberty. Uh, mm -hmm. I do remember having some crushes still in elementary school. I don't know if they're fully like fleshed out fantasies because I didn't really know what sex looked like. Mm. But knowing I think that I wanted to like kiss and touch and be physically close to and intimate with these usually boys that I had crushes on when I was, you know, eight, nine, ten. But I think at that time, too, it was just like, well, I want a boyfriend that I can hold hands with at school because I'd mm. see like other people with boyfriends holding hands at school, you know, and I'd have a crush on someone and I'd be like, this is the person I want to hold hands with. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and even in sixth grade, I did get a boyfriend for a short period of time and it was like, oh, I get to hold hands in school. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I think I wasn't even really thinking about like making out or anything at that point. And then mm -hmm. that all sort of shifted around eighth grade, like 13. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like my first couple of kisses, like French kissing experiences were at, we would call them boy girl parties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if so-and-so's mom let her kid have a boy-girl party, we wanted to be invited to that fucking party. Let me tell yeah. you. 
<laughs> and I am grateful because um, the one kiss, it was, it was probably my second time, second and third time kissing was at this one party. And there's literally like maybe three of us girls and like two boys mm-hmm. and they were older and um, we were playing spin the bottle and we, you know, Clueless was all of our favorite movie at the time. So that suck and blow game they play and the, you know, we're trying that. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow we all just managed to be making out with each other the whole time. Um, (laughs) And were you making out with just the boys or with everybody, all the girls too? Just the boys, because, you know, at the time it was still 1990 you know, maybe five or six mm-hmm. at the latest. And maybe Ellen was just about to come out on TV. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we weren't really there culturally yet at the point where that would be an acceptable thing um, mm. at school and stuff. You didn't want anybody saying that you were a lesbian Right. So yeah, it was just with the boys, but I still to this day, like I do believe that I sort of picked up my kissing style from that older, attractive young man. And, um, Mm. and I'm very, very happy with it. (laughs) (laughs) So do tell what is your kissing style? (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like, you know, you get your lips in there open your mouth and almost do like sort of a rhythmic massaging with the tongue of each other's Mm. tongues. Yeah. And like not a hard tongue, like a flexed tongue muscle, like a nice relaxed soft tongue muscle Uh, (laughs) (laughs) with a good like lippy kiss, like in between every few, Mm. like, yeah. Well, that sounds delightful. (laughs) Yes. If I do say so myself. (laughs) So you're 13. You have a few experiences of kissing boys at parties. Was there a point at which you were like, I want a boy. I want a boyfriend. I had a crush on this one boy and it remained unrequited. But I will say I never, uh, I'll never forget, I had such a big crush on him and like all my friends knew and he definitely knew and his friends knew and it was a whole thing. And, you know, we'd have our little middle school dances and I don't remember, there was some kind of drama going on and the dance was almost over. And I just, I guess I just wished that he would ask me to dance or something. But I, I'll never forget the way it felt like. I heard him call my name. Like I turned and looked and it was like all the people parted like a movie. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, will you dance with me? And I did. And it was to um, Keith Sweat, Twisted. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The song is Twisted and uh, we danced to it and, you know, holding each other close. It was very nice. And it was a nice little charity dance that he threw my way. A little pity dance, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) And let me tell you, I went home and I fucking played that song. I got that CD just for that song. And I played it a million times, like weeping into my pillow. (laughs) (laughs) So nothing came of that with that boy. No, never did. Never did. I, well, I do think that, um, you know, at freshman year, he did ask me to homecoming dance. We, we went to homecoming dance together. So somewhere I've got like one of those little dance photos, you know, that yeah. you would take. Yeah. 
but you know, no, nothing happened. It was just kind of like a nice, a nice thing for him to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when was the first time that you actually got involved with somebody? Oh man. You know, I had some of those little handholdy couple day relationships in like middle school and stuff, but mm-hmm. my first real like relationship that I remember being, remember being very invested in and like I was in love with her. It was mm-hmm. someone who I was definitely kind of obsessed with a little bit. Uh, so I came to high school and I was just, I was just trying to dress like everyone else and, you know, fit in with the crowd. And then in my English class, which I had my mom for a teacher. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> uh, twice in high school, actually my freshman year and again, my senior year. Um, and there was a young lady sitting in front of me and she was in all black. She had like red and black eyeliner on and then her bangs, she had used whatever type of product to like pull them directly over down the front of her face, but in like (laughs) little spikes almost. Mm -hmm. And they, I mean, they went all the way down to like her nose or chin or something like it was very weird, but (laughs) I was just instantly intrigued by this person. Mm-hmm. She is super goth. And here I was in my outfit from like wet seal or whatever. <laughs> and she's got this like Marilyn Manson stuff all over. And I'm just like, what is this? Like, I just instantly wanted to know her more. And then I guess I must've been a little bit inspired. So after freshman year, I was like, when I go back to school, I don't think I want to be like fitting in in the same way that I've always tried to. I think I want to try to maybe like present myself a little bit differently. Do you struggle with how your body looks during sex? You're not alone. Growing up as little girls, most of us learned that our worth was entirely tied to how we look. We saw TV shows and movies and fashion magazines that showed a very narrow range of bodies. And we were told that those were the perfect desirable bodies. The message, if you don't look like that, you're not worthy of love. But here's the not so secret secret. They're lying. There are people who want to love you in the body you're in today I promise they want to see your body. They want to touch your body. They want to worship your body. I promise. But even if a person is already touching you, if you don't believe you're worthy of their time, attention, affection, you'll never let yourself relax enough to enjoy it. And you deserve to relax. You deserve to let yourself be seen and touched and worshipped. You deserve to experience pleasure without thinking about how much your arms jiggle. You deserve to have sex in any position you want, not just the one where you think you look the thinnest. Would you tell your daughter or sister or best friend that they don't deserve love? because they don't look like Kim Kardashian? Of course not. So let's do something to help you stop saying that to yourself. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life. 
and I would be honored to be your coach on the journey to get there. I'm queer, kinky, and non-monogamy friendly, and I would love to talk with you. So for more information and to schedule your free discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching for your free discovery call. That link is in the episode description on the app you're listening on now. Back to the show. By the end of my sophomore year, I was full on hot topic goth kid, like (laughs) completely. But I think that was what was so what was interesting is just that like I didn't quite understand that I was like growing feelings for her until sort of, yeah, after 10th grade year that summer and then going into 11th. And I was just like, ah, like I, I knew that I wanted to be with her at that point. And so there was this one night and we got drunk and um, we start we started making out and I was just like oh my gosh, I wanted this for so long. And she was like, oh, are you kidding me? I I wanted this for so long. And like, she's like, you're the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. And oh my gosh, (laughs) it felt so amazing. But then it was like going into the school year, I was kind of like, so we're together now, right? She did eventually say like, yes, yes, we're, we're together. You're my girlfriend. We're girlfriends now. And I was like, oh, this is so great. And, you know, we felt like we had to keep it a secret at school, but there was something that happened and we just started holding hands and then we went to homecoming together mm. uh before which she and I got like so insanely high uh before we went that like I barely <laughs> remember it the thing i mainly uh-huh. remember is us just standing at the table with the snacks and eating like chips and salsa just like fucking high out of our minds <laughs> <laughs> But we were dancing together and we were holding hands and and then we just, we were a couple at school. We were holding hands from class to class. Like it felt really amazing. And I was definitely in love with her and really attached to that. Um, And that was, that was a revelation at my school for sure, because the area I grew up in what is very small and it was highly religious. Um, There is a Mormon church catty corner across the street from the school and a Catholic mm-hmm. church right across the street from the school. <laughs> I mean, it was just, that was a whole thing. So we were, you know, definitely the first couple on my campus, a hundred percent to be, you know, an out couple. Did you get blowback for that? So I can only speak from my experience. Mm-hmm. I didn't experience any blowback. You know, I remember sometimes like I'd go to a class and uh, my friend, she came in and she like slammed her shit on the table. You could tell she was very upset. And I was like, what's wrong? And she's just, she didn't say people were talking shit about you, but she was like, Mm. you know, I just basically I'm sick of like all this ignorance and, you know, the way people are, are talking about, you know, I guess it was, it felt very subtle at the time. And then my other friend, my best friend, I was like, have people said anything? And she's like, yeah, I heard some people saying some stuff that I just didn't hear it. Um, They were like walking behind us. And I guess maybe they were saying something. I don't know. But yeah. So for me, like, again, just more blessed again, just blessed (laughs) in so many ways. But (laughs) I don't know what her experience was. I do know that after. So we were together officially for like probably about three months. And then she came to me one day, we went in the library and she's like, I just, I don't think I can be in this relationship anymore. I am, 
I feel like we were too good of friends before that mm. now I struggle with like the intimacy aspect or whatever. And so I started crying and I went to my mom's classroom at lunch and that's where like some of my other friends were. And I was just like, she broke up with me. And, <laughs> mm. you know, I think they were kind of like, cause she is, uh, you know, she just got in touch with me again and I was so disappointed I was so excited to hear from her because it's been like more than it's been about 15 years, mm -hmm. but then it quickly turned to disappointment when she started saying stuff like they're um, brainwashing kids in schools to be trans and oh, no. something about Trump. Oh, I love that guy. And I was just like, oh, no. I just didn't say anything. But I, I think my friends were, yeah, at the time in high school, after she broke up with me, I think my friends didn't want to be like, oh, thank God you got away from her. But <laughs> pretty sure that's what they were thinking and feeling yeah. at the time. Yeah. So that was my first relationship and um, my only full on relationship with a romantic relationship with a woman. During that relationship, did you begin to think of yourself as lesbian uh, so from my own experience, I didn't understand that you could like boys and girls. I thought <laughs> you had to like either boys or girls. Oh, no. And so bisexuality came as a complete surprise to me when I was like in my 20s. Wow. Um, so I'm wondering, when you were in high school dating a woman, did that say something to you about who you thought you were? Um, I realized that I was bisexual probably around 12. 12 Ooh. was when it started where I was like watching Clueless or watching The Craft. And I'm like, <laughs> I am so attracted to these women, but I don't really understand what does that mean? And then I would masturbate at night and I would think about Cher from Clueless, like mm -hmm. being between my legs. And so that was kind of how I started to feel like, oh, I think this might be a thing. And then like as time went on and I started to just like understand it better. By the time I hit, you know, 14 and freshman year, I knew I was bisexual. I made a big deal out of telling my best friend. It was just a big secret. And I was like, I have this secret and like, I really want to tell you, but I'm so worried because she at the time and then continuing to this day, it was extremely Christian, mm. very, very, very invested. But I mean, with that being said, it, you know, I was afraid that if, if I told her that that might be like, now she doesn't want to be my friend anymore or something. But, um, so I kind of dragged it out for a couple of weeks. And then when I finally told her, I remember how difficult it was to get the words out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was so hard. But when I did, she was like, yeah, I knew. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it when that's – when I was coming out, I hated it when that was people's answer because I was like, well, then why didn't you tell me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that that was how I identified at the time was bisexual, but – didn't encounter a, a ton of, I was just so lucky, especially the town that I grew up in. I just didn't 
experience a lot of hate. And my mom was, you know, the only reason why she said something. And I never came to my mom and I was like, listen, I'm bisexual. Like, at least I don't Mm -hmm. remember doing that. But I did start holding hands with my girlfriend on campus where my mom taught school. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's a very small campus. So, yeah, she definitely saw. And I just remember one day driving to school, you know, and she was just like, she was just concerned as any parent might be, not about my identity, but that I would be a victim of violence because of my identity. I know that that, that's what her concern was. But me being, you know, a 16-year-old girl, I was like, how could you say these things to me when you always raised me to believe that, like, this is a fine way of being. It's just another way of being and we are accepting and loving and that's the type of people that we are. So I, I felt that whatever that like incongruity there that I I was so frustrated at the time, you know, it was just a different time. And so I can understand her concern in a way that I definitely couldn't at the time. And I did fool around with another girl before. Mm -hmm. I just remember this before my relationship, it wasn't a relationship, but it was like, I mean, we made out, we did some hand stuff, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, you mentioned that that was your only serious relationship with a woman. Yeah. Um, was there a conscious decision to move back to men or did it just happen to be the circumstances? It's just the circumstances. Yeah, for sure. No, I I was, I just never thought about it like that. I guess I've just really been like, I am myself and I am going to pursue the people that I've, I'm attracted to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, again, I was just lucky I didn't have any of these sort of concepts hanging over my head trying to steer me towards like heteronormativity or whatever. This is why I now identify as queer. And everyone is like, I love that people can identify as however they feel that they are. For me, I choose queer over bisexual because... It just doesn't feel like a binary to me. Like my attraction doesn't feel like a binary, but it's, it's, you know, it's totally valid to have the same type of like relationships with other humans as I do, but call yourself something else, pansexual Mm -hmm. or bisexual. That's fine. But just for me. And oftentimes, I guess I'm kind of like demisexual with men that Mm -hmm. it's not usually like a, visual automatic sort of attraction with men it's like maybe i've been like oh this guy's kind of cute because he like plays guitar and like you know he's kind of cute and then his friend i'm not so much into just off looks but then i get to know them both and i'm like actually i'm more attracted to his friend now because yeah. of the, all these other things that i find attractive so like that sort of thing would happen so it was just that uh, the, the other thing about it is that I do think that relationship-wise, now I've only been in like two long-term serious relationships in my adulthood, but they were with men. They currently are. My husband is my life partner. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, and I feel more of like sexual attraction to women generally. This is all just being general, but um yeah, like less interested in like uh, long-term serious romantic relationships with women, but very, very physically attracted to women. 
So, you know, whatever. I'm sure someone will come up with a name for that eventually. (laughs) (laughs) That is actually exactly my breakdown as well. I am physically extremely attracted to women and I choose the vast majority of my romantic relationships have been with men. And the way that I call that is that I am bisexual and I use the term bi Mm -hmm. to mean people whose bodies look like mine and people whose bodies don't look like mine. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) I love that. Just because that was the word that became available to me in my, you know, um, anyway, so I'm bisexual, meaning I'm, I'm attracted to lots of different bodies, but I'm primarily heteroromantic. Yeah, yeah, heteroromantic. And just primarily, I mean, that's yeah. the thing too. I don't feel like it's a glass cage that I can't escape. <laughs> yeah. I'm in these boxes and it can't be any different. Um, it's happened for me before. I don't see why it wouldn't happen for me again to to uh, be like more romantically attracted to a woman, but you know, I am married and I know that this is the person for me and it does happen to be a, a man and so and we do have this, you know, it's like a little monogamish. I have some freedom when it comes to women. And if I did develop feelings, uh, they would always be secondary to my primary relationship for sure. But yeah. it's not to say that that could never happen. It's just feels slightly unlikely. But we've had lots of amazing experiences with uh, threesomes, both recording it for work, but also with no camera, uh, which definitely makes it better, <laughs> more more fulfilling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that is something that's like, that's really important to me. Like, I, I love that. That's one of my favorite things because then both of us get to enjoy another person, equal enjoyment. And usually it's the two of us sort of lavishing attention on the third because that's like, that's our little gift. That's our little, I don't know. (laughs) I love it. Um, And want to make sure that everyone is enjoying themselves and each other. And like, this is all fun and good. So, you know, and then that being said too, um, we have done scenes with trans women and, Mm -hmm. and I am definitely a queer person. So even though he identifies as cis and straight, the relationship we have is still queer because that's just who we are, I guess. <laughs> so tell me about how you got into sex work. So I, I uh, you know, growing up in the 90s and stuff, I didn't have access to internet porn at all, really. But somehow I knew I wanted to be a porn star when I was like 13. Really? Yeah. And I didn't know like what that meant. I didn't know that that meant I'd be fucking dudes or I'd be fucking girls or I'd even like have to make a differentiation between that. Like it was more of just this ephemeral idea, this concept of like being naked, naked performance, something like Mm -hmm. that, you know? Um, So I actually was telling everybody at school that I wanted to be a porn star when I was 13. (laughs) If you look at my, um, I still have my eighth grade yearbook and everyone's leaving comments fully supporting that decision. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing given the time and space totally, you were totally. in. Totally. <laughs> Agree. And then like as I 
you know, went into high school and stuff, it kind of morphed into being a stripper. Mm-hmm. All of that just to me sounded so adventurous and wild and exotic and exciting. And that's sort of like the lifestyle I wanted. I didn't even think about it in any sort of like long-term careers type of sense. I just knew that I wanted to do this stuff. And so on my 18th birthday, like I had even called a local strip club maybe like a month before I turned 18. And I was like, Hey, so I just want to know about like, what's the procedure to get to be able to work there. And at some point I I think I must've mentioned like, well, I'm not 18 yet, but I'm going to be soon. And and he was, whoever I was talking to was like, well, call back when you're 18. (laughs) And I'm like, fair, that's fair. (laughs) But yeah, so somehow I got involved. So it was a friend's older sister And of course, everyone knew. I talked about this all the time. So I was like, okay, I'm going to be 18. Like, which club? Go work at a club or what am I going to do? She was like, oh, well, I actually have a friend who could get you hooked up with this more like bachelor parties and stuff. Mm -hmm. So she set it up so that it was literally like on the day of my 18th birthday. We met at this hotel room and he's like, all right, here's what we normally do. This is what happens normally with shows. You're going to get there. It's going to be one guy. You get the money. You bring it back out to the driver. Then you come back in the room and you do a show. And the guy's going to jerk off while you do whatever you're going to do, dance around, play with yourself, whatever, and try to get it done in less than an hour. Even though you paid for an hour, try to get tips. And like, that's, that's how you do this. And I was like, Oh, this isn't like the bachelor party thing that I thought it was. What did you think? I thought it would be more like bachelor parties. I thought it was okay. like, oh, everybody's having these bachelor parties and they're calling strippers over. And so it'd be groups of, you know, like five to 10 guys and we're just doing like naked dancing in front of them and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's what I thought. <laughs> mm-hmm. Again, like I didn't have a lot of examples or access to media about this. Like I just didn't know exactly what I was getting into, but I knew that I wanted to get into it. So he's sitting next to her, like already jerking off this total stranger. And she's just sitting there and she gives me this look on her face like, well, this is what we're doing. Like she's trying <laughs> not to laugh, but oh my God, it's so funny. And um, really after that, I don't, I barely even remember what happened. Like, I think that I just kind of went over to the bed and I was kind of like awkwardly touching my body and taking off my clothes and maybe playing with her boobs a little bit or something. Um, Mm -hmm. And then he just, he finished up like pretty much right away. And then, so, so again, this was 2001 Mm -hmm. and we each got 50 bucks. That felt like a win at the time. (laughs) Uh, I was like, wow, 50 bucks in my hands. This is like a whole week's paycheck, you know? (laughs) And so I did end up signing on with that company and I only did it for maybe, gosh, was it maybe like a month, maybe a couple months. Mm -hmm. And I never made that much money because I didn't know what I was doing. And I was just barely an adult. Um, I didn't know how to hustle or play a game. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I, I don't play games. Like I'm such a fucking, I'm just so straightforward and authentic. And like I take people as they come to me. So I never made that much money because I didn't want to give hand jobs and 
I didn't want to give any kinds of jobs. I just wanted to take my clothes off. And if people want to jerk off to that, like that was more than fine with me. Mm -hmm. I, I, I always felt like orgasms were a little celebration. So when the shows did go through and they were like that, where I was just kind of dancing around and the guy was jerking off and then he came and he was, he was so happy and excited and like made me happy and excited. And I was like, this is great. But so much of the time they were just like, well, if you're not even going to jerk me off, like, what are you doing here? Leave, you know, like shit like that mm. would happen all the time. So it didn't last very long. I did do maybe a couple of photo shoots that I found in the back of like uh, city magazines and stuff. They used to have mm -hmm. ads and so I did a couple of those and it felt good. I wasn't quite ready for video yet, but I enjoyed taking the pictures and getting paid mm -hmm. for it. It was really nice. And then I was working at the Olive Garden. I was just struggling with my ex and I just reached this point where I was like, I am ready to go do this thing where I strip in a club and mm -hmm. I have been wanting to do this and he knew I had been wanting to do this. And so I was like, I think I need to just do it and went to the strip club and walked in and they're like, yeah, you can audition. What's your stage name? I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know this was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so at first I said something like Randy and then I was like, no, 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 wait, make it sin with two ends. So that was just a like off the cuff idea. Yeah, basically. I, it was a little uh -huh. bit inspired from my high school girlfriend who, <laughs> so she had this hamster that she named <laughs> disease. So that was like the aesthetic there. So I always thought that something that was kind of like that, something that was like dark and mm -hmm. I don't know, sin sounded good, like a, almost like a, I don't know, in your face type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I thought with two ends because like you got to make it different somehow, right? You got to make it <laughs> yeah. more exciting. Yeah. I went in there. Uh, it was actually kind of cute because I had, on, I had on this like, it was a dress, but it was, it was a tight, like sexy dress, what I considered to be. And the strippers were just like, mm, no, just take off that dress. What do you have on underneath? It was like bra and panties. They're like, this is how you go out on stage. I was like, okay, thank you for the help. <laughs> hey, friends. New in 2023, I'm teaching a full year of live online classes. Make 2023 the year you fall in love with your sex life. In fact, that's the name of this series. Fall in love with your sex life, a year of sexy secrets. There'll be 14 classes in total, and you're welcome to cherry pick the ones you want to attend or purchase a pass to get them all. We're going to kickstart the series with weekly classes in February, and they'll be on Sunday, February 5th, timey spank me talk dirty to me, dipping your toes into kink. On Sunday, February 12th, how can I enjoy sex if I hate my body? Sex and body image. On Sunday, February 19th, wanting to want sex, diving into libido and desire. And on Sunday, February 26th, I'm a feminist. Why do I want to be spanked? Then beginning in March, we'll move to one class a month, the final Sunday of each month, and all classes are at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. 
Classes are recorded, so everyone who registers will get a copy, whether you're able to attend in person or not. You're welcome to send questions in advance if you know you can't be there, and I'll make sure to answer them on the recording. Each class is scheduled for 90 minutes, and I'll stay on the line with the recording running for up to another half hour to make sure we cover as many questions as possible. In the first class, Tiny Spank Me Talk Dirty to Me, we'll break down the four letters, B-D-S-M, because they actually cover a ton of territory, as well as types of kink that may not fall under the umbrella of BDSM. Then, we'll talk about the foundational pieces of getting involved in kink, and how to stay safe, like how to talk about what you want, setting boundaries, and how do you use a safe word if you're gagged? There'll be plenty of time for questions, and there's no question that is too basic or too kinky. Registration is open now at leahcarry.com forward slash classes. You can register for just the Timey Spank Me Talk Dirty to Me class on February 5th, or a bundle of the February classes, or the entire series. And to sweeten the pot, here's an offer only for podcast listeners. Use the link in the show notes to leave a review for the Good Girls Talk About Sex podcast. When it's posted, take a screenshot, send it to me, and I'll send you a coupon for $5 off a class. If you're feeling turned on by the very idea of having these conversations in a safe, supportive, non-judgmental space, register right now while you're still juiced. It's so easy to let your sex life take a back seat. So flip the script right now while you're feeling the energy. Make sex a priority. Go to leahcarry.com forward slash classes to register. That link is in the show description of the app you're listening on now. Let's make 2023 the year you fall in love with your sex life. Had you taken any dance lessons? Did you know how to work the pole? Like, what kind of preparation did you have for this? Nothing, really. I mean, when I was growing up, I was always, like I said, I was doing lots of theater. And I did take a few dance classes, but it's a very different thing from dancing on stage at a strip club. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I just kind of like wander around the poles and and slink up against them and spin around them. And I'm sure it looks awkward, but what happens when you're a stripper in a strip club is you really, you learn by watching a lot. And I would just say there's so many times where the club is like practically empty. So there's lots of watching you can do. And that's how I kind of learned a bunch of pole tricks and just really refined that performance just from watching. And I, I ended up doing that for years. Yeah. So I, I got hired and at that first weekend, I worked Thursday, Friday and Saturday nights and I made a thousand dollars in Holy three days. Crap. Wow. And for at that time when it was like, I had just been making tips at the Olive Garden and it was enough to pay the bills at the time, especially because like the, there was no cell phones, uh, so no cell phone bill. It was just like a landline and then 
the apartment, we had a two bedroom apartment for five twenty five. Oh my God. <laughs> right. Isn't that crazy to think about now? Um, just 20 years ago. <laughs> it's a different world. <laughs> so yeah, to, to be kind of just like busting my ass to, tr- to try to make those bills to getting double our rent in just three nights. I was like, mm. this works for me. This really mm-hmm. works for me. Um, and also I really enjoyed it. Definitely enjoyed the attention. And I loved going to a place where I barely have to have clothes on to do my job. And <laughs> I get to like look and feel and be sexy for a living to me that that was all just so appealing. So yeah, I, Put in my two week notice at the Olive Garden and, (laughs) (laughs) and then we were able to move. Like I had enough money to put a down payment to live in a place where we more wanted to be at the time. Yeah. And so the club you were in, was it a no touch club? Do those even exist? <laughs> I, well, I don't know. I'm asking you. <laughs> um, How does that work? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the the way that it works in that I have danced, um, I haven't da- danced in like every state in the country or anything, but I have danced uh, in various places all around the country. The way that it is, generally speaking, is that the customers touch as much as the dancer is willing to let them, at least mm-hmm. in this certain outside areas. Like if you're doing, um, like if you're at a club where lap dances are done, we'll, we'd call it like on the floor, meaning mm-hmm. like the main area, <laughs> like where everyone's sitting and watching the dancer and stuff. Some clubs, you give the, the dances there, like the $20 dances are there. Mm-hmm. Other clubs, even the $20 dances, like you pull off into a more private space. But definitely, you know, you're trying to hustle those VIPs, which will be like usually three songs for 70 or, or something like that. And it's more in a private area, but you get like a bigger cut. You know, there's various different models of this as you go to different clubs. But I think it really is a thing of, you know, whatever you're comfortable with is generally speaking what you can get away with up to a certain point. But that being said, you know, I have worked in some of the dirtiest, uh, dirty meaning like the dancers are uh doing more full service stuff inside the strip club. And for people who are not familiar with the term full service, can you describe that? Oh, yeah. So uh, that's what when we say sex work, it really is sex work and sex worker. It's a total umbrella term. It means all work that's done of any kind of a sexual nature, webcamming, sexting services, phone sex services, uh, really anything. Even if you have zero interaction, face-to-face interaction with a customer or client, um, that's still sex work. I'll even partially say kind of maybe like owning a retail uh, sex toy store. I mean, these are just things, these are sex-based, the sex-based economy. So my opinion, that makes you a sex worker. But full-service sex worker is... The term that I definitely prefer for people who do either physical hand jobs, foot jobs, blow jobs, or full on anal or vaginal oral penetration. So that would be full service sex work. And there are like message boards and stuff for strip club customers, strip club aficionados, let's call them connoisseurs, perhaps. Uh, And then then they would even like rate, they'd have the system for rating the dancers. But this, this one strip club, there were $20 dances out on the floor, but 
the way you made the money and the hustle was to get them back in that VIP room. And those VIP rooms was three songs for $120 out of which we would get, I believe $70 maybe. Mm, wow. And it was, you'd bring them back there, sit them on that couch and then pull the curtain shut. Everything was going on back there. <laughs> <laughs> so anything goes as long as you're okay with it. Yeah. And I, I had, you know, I had my own boundaries. They were pretty set. It made it a struggle for me because I knew what I was competing with. But, um, and I did have to reach a point where I was trying to play the game a little bit. So there was a three song VIP room and then there was a five song VIP room that was even further in the back mm-hmm. and it cost more money. I think it was like 200 for the five songs. And there was this guy and he was like, so we're, I'm trying to talk him into going in the back and he was like, oh yeah, can I do this? Can I do that? And I was like, oh, it's, you know, it gets crazy back there. Like, I don't know. We have to go back there. <laughs> and he was like, will you suck it? Mm. And I said, yeah. So we went back there and I'm just dancing on him. And then I take his hand and I put his finger in my mouth and I sucked on him. (laughs) 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 Which now I'm like, ugh, fucking disgusting. But um, (laughs) I'm like, that's probably worse. But, uh, you know, then it's getting towards the end of it. And he's like, you said you'd suck it. And I was like, I didn't say what. (laughs) (laughs) But that did not make me feel good. And I also, you know, the other thing about that time period and that place was that like, we did not get the money before we did the dance. Mm. And so there were times that it was just cut real close. I think in that situation, he's like, you know, I don't even have to give you the money. And I Mm. remember this like wave of panic, like washing over me. And then I was like, that was a really stupid thing for me to fucking do. Luckily he paid me, but then I was just like, I don't think I can like play that game anymore of sort of, I mean, the game is to like, like let these guys think whatever they want to think is going to happen back there without saying that it's going to happen. But that is so much labor. (laughs) That is so much emotional labor. Like now it's easier to see that, but, um, but yeah, you know, it, it made things a little harder for me just because I did have those boundaries, but just the reputation of the club made it that people were in there and they were spending money sometimes. So, so you were in a relationship at the same time that you started dancing. Is that correct? Yes. And so what were the agreements that you had within your relationship? Yeah. Yeah. Because I also, he also knew that I very much wanted to perform that I wanted to make porn and that opportunity came from the strip club. I had been working at that strip club for three months and this girl had worked there a few times. And then one day she's talking in the back and she's like, Oh yeah, my boyfriend, you know, makes my website and blah, blah, blah. blah. And I was like, oh, you have a website. I've always wanted a website. Like I want to do website stuff. And back in 2002, I guess it was, that was a huge thing, like a membership mm-hmm. site back then. It was great. We didn't have pirating and stuff going on at the same time and all this stuff. So <laughs> they took me to my first AVN convention in 2003. And that's kind of like how things started snowballing towards my career in um, performance-based sex work. So before the strip club, I remember that he was just like, you know, just don't get caught up in it, whatever that meant. 
And then I did like do a fuck up one time because I don't know. I was just, I was just a baby. (laughs) (laughs) And I met a guy there at the strip club that I was having a great conversation with. And he was a young person also. And I just didn't understand yet at that time that like men in strip clubs are not there to make friends with strippers. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was just like really friendly and just super naive. And so I just, stupidly gave my phone number to a guy Mm -hmm. at the strip club and he called, I think when I wasn't even there or something and my boyfriend answered the phone and um, yeah, that was like a really big deal, even though, so I knew in my heart of hearts, like I was desperately in love with this guy. Like the the concept of sleeping with another dude, that wasn't even something that would cross my mind. But, you know, he had a very different upbringing and stuff. And this was within a year of our relationship. So I think he struggled with that a lot. But he was also reaping the benefits of this work that I was doing. Uh, There were many, many times that he did not have a job for extended periods. Mm -hmm. And it was me making the money. But our agreement, especially when I got into porn, it wasn't even... Again, it wasn't even like a concept that I thought of that, oh, I have to decide, am I going to do boy, girl or girl, girl or what, what am I, I was like, to me, it was very obvious. Well, I'm obviously not going to do boy, girl, because I'm not going to sleep with other men while I'm with you. But you do know that I'm a bisexual person and that to do scenes with women, like I want that, that has to be okay. Kind Mm -hmm. of. I mean, I think even at the time I was just like, this is what I'm doing. (laughs) You're going to be on board or not. Even though I would have done anything for him, I don't think I would have like given up that particular dream or vision Mm -hmm. that I had for my life. So that was pretty much it. It was just like, do girl, girl, and it'll be fine. And at first it really was fine. I mean, we never, I never, ever reached a point where he was like, I don't want you doing porn anymore. Like that definitely wasn't a thing ever because I think he knew that wouldn't have worked, (laughs) but he was never supportive. He was never Mm -hmm. like, Oh, tell me about your day. How was it? What was it like? Who did you work with? Um, And especially getting into the industry, I did a ton of like fetish work. So not Mm -hmm. necessarily sex scenes. I always call them like you're playing pretend with your friends or your coworkers, you're just playing little games of pretend and then you get paid for it at the end of the day. <laughs> I, like, I don't see the problem here, but there was this weird period of time where he did start saying, well, I want to make it fair. You get to have sex with women. Like, why don't mm. I get to kind of a thing? But looking back now, I know that that was because he had started sleeping with my best friend behind me back. Mm. And so he's like, I don't know. And I also think that like other people were saying to him, I don't even think I know, like his cousin would be like, why is it okay for her to sleep with other girls, but it's not okay for you. And I'm like, well, first of all, that logic, if we're going by that logic, that would mean that it's okay for you to sleep with other guys, which Mm -hmm. I know you don't want to do. So, (laughs) but you know, I, I mean, now obviously I look at things way differently, but, um, I think that that's it. He just wanted to be able to justify what he was doing. And, and I think it was unhealthy in a lot of ways. Um, But even after that all came out and we moved on with our lives, I mean, I stayed with him for like another seven years. Wow. Yeah. 
it was just really bad. And it was a lot of codependency, a lot of not even understanding that I was really depressed. I knew I was miserable, but like, I was just kind of like, well, this will be my life. (laughs) I just kind of resigned to that misery. Um, It took a lot and a while for me to realize that, you know, I had the power to end the relationship and I was the only one who's going to be able to do it. So I finally did. And, uh, The crazy thing about it too is that I knew logically, I knew that on the other side of the mountain that was me breaking up with him, on the other side of that mountain, there was a better life waiting for me. I was so depressed that the concept of climbing that mountain seemed so out of reach. I think the other logical fallacy with him saying, Well, if you get to, why don't I get to? is that this is your work. This is your profession. Perhaps you get some pleasure from it and awesome, but that doesn't make it any less of your work. He's just wanting to get his rocks off. A hundred percent. That is a very uh, accurate observation. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Yeah. But making that distinction at that time, you know, uh, I didn't have the vocabulary for it or even quite the understanding that I definitely have now about that. Yeah. So were you dancing and doing porn at the same time or are those two things incompatible? Oh, no, totally compatible. Yeah, I definitely was. So when I started dancing, um, didn't have a foot in the door with porn, but like I said, I went to the AVN and, um, got my, and that's the the adult video network. Yes. Adult video network. And they put on a convention every January. It's a convention for three, four days. And then on the last day that evening is the awards show. And so AVN awards is, Yeah, for lack of a better concept, it is the Oscars of porn. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and so uh, so that got my foot in the door, and I did, uh, you know, I'd I'd hustle some gigs from time to time, but it wasn't enough for me to sustain myself on exclusively. I I did have to keep dancing to get the income. It was around 2007, maybe late 2007, that I started – getting booked enough porn work that I I didn't need to go to the strip club anymore. And so mm. I would still do it on occasion, but never again seriously as in multiple days a week for my main income source. I get so many messages from listeners saying, thank you for the show. I've listened to the whole back catalog and it's helped me completely transform my sex life. Are you one of those people? If so, I'd love to have your support so I can keep growing this show and bringing a new vision of sexuality to the world. If you haven't done it yet, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. I know the podcast industry does not make reviewing a show easy. So go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash good girls, and it should lead you through the process of posting a review. I'd love to get 100 reviews by the end of the year, and I could use your help. 
And if you have the financial resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be so grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. And I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are now either illegal or heavily legislated. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And speaking of Patreon, there is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free for everyone to listen to. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access it. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you, whether you're a client, a contributor, a social media follower, or a silent listener. I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. Shooting porn is, it sounds like, more enjoyable for you than dancing. Is that accurate? Um, I guess I would say yes, but of course I do feel nostalgia. (laughs) (laughs) So definitely when I, if I ever go as a customer to a strip club, I I love watching the women and I can enjoy just watching, but I, you know, I always get that sensation that it should be me on that stage. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's just the exhibitionist in me. Um, (laughs) But the main thing is that when it comes to porn, I walk into a scenario, I know exactly how much money I'm leaving with. I know pretty much what's going to be going down. And and for me too, like making that transition, like going from working at the strip club to the first few times I'd had like professional mainstream girl, girl shoots. I felt like a movie star. I mean, I felt like a princess. I was just, it was like, what do you need? What do you want? What can we get for you? Uh, here's craft services over here. Here's a makeup artist doing your makeup over there. Put on your pretty girl outfit. Uh, uh-huh. which is a term I had to learn. Um, you got to take your pretty girls that those are, it's basically just the photo set that you take before you do a scene. Mm-hmm. And um, so I get to put on my little pretty girls outfit and feel sexy and be, have someone taking pictures of me. And like, especially when I was younger or there was a, a, or newer, I should say there was a lot of like encouragement and like verbal um, confirmation of my, from, you know, from the photographer, which was just, so to me, I was like, why would anyone not do this? Mm. And I remembered working with girls at the strip club that like, some of them were just so beautiful. Like I definitely had a crush on this one girl star. And, you know, I knew that at that strip club, she, she had clients that, you know, she had her separate burner phone to contact these clients. And, (laughs) They'd come in and they'd take her into the VIP and they'd be back there for a long time. And I know she's getting paid like a thousand dollars to have sex with this guy. Wow. But I was like, you know, if you did this porn, like you could be get, get paid a thousand dollars to have sex with a guy and 
you'd be treated extremely well and it wouldn't be in a dirty ass strip club and you get to feel like a movie star. And, (laughs) you know, I just, I couldn't understand why she wouldn't, you know, or why one wouldn't like prefer to do that. Mm -hmm. Of course, now I totally understand why and everything that I've made, it's out there on the internet forever. Mm. But it was a different time then. Like was, you had yeah. no idea what was coming in terms of streaming and pirating and totally. all of that. <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> nope, not a uh, not a fortune teller. <laughs> yeah. So I think I know that you're still doing camera work. Yeah. How has that changed over the years? Are you still shooting mainstream porn? Or are you doing something different now? Yeah. So, uh, the industry has changed maybe a dozen times since I entered it. (laughs) (laughs) It's just this constantly evolving thing, especially because it is so wrapped up in media and media technology and stuff. So of course it's going to be evolving over and over and over again. So I like to put it as though the first 10 years of my career were definitely me getting paid to do performances. So, you know, mainstream porn has like a couple different types of connotations, but, you know, I still do perform in it. I, I probably always will as long as, you know, uh, they want to pay my rates and, and everything like that. So it's, but the, the first 10 years of my career would be like, I was just basically waiting for the phone to ring or the email to come in or the text, uh-huh. you know, are you available on this day? Can you do a scene with so-and-so? And then I'd get paid, you know, anywhere from like on the low end, it would be maybe six or $700 on the high end. It would be maybe, maybe nine average was 800 bucks. And it, mm-hmm. it still kind of is that hasn't changed much depending on lots of various other things, but. And is that for a day for a couple hours for two days? What is it? At most a day, but uh-huh. basically that is for a sex scene, no matter how long it takes to shoot. So sometimes I go in there and it takes two hours. I'm in and out and I get $800. There have been times that I've been sitting on set for 14 hours Whoa. and I got $800. Mm-hmm. And that is how it works. So that was great. And what was fun about all that was that it was, uh, I went home from the gig. I had no homework. <laughs> you know, I got, I got the money and I could just like do with my time, the rest of my time, whatever I wanted. Now things are different and there is lots of homework. So it changed around the time of Pornhub sort of becoming this monolithic figure. (laughs) (laughs) The companies were producing a lot less. They didn't have the money that they had before. And so then my proverbial phone wasn't ringing as much. And I started to get a little concerned. Uh, I was camming, I was webcamming to make some extra money and it, it was okay. But like around 2012, 2013, I had started getting asked about custom videos. Mm. And I was like, well, sorry, I I don't make them. Like, I don't have the means of making them. Can you explain what a custom video is? Absolutely. So a custom video is a personalized video for a fan. What they'll do is send me an email describing the video that they want to see. 
it'll be this many minutes, it has this many performers, and you're doing these acts. And that can be anything from fully clothed, sticking a finger up your nose, all the way to explicit, hardcore pornography. Mm-hmm. And then I tell them what price I want for the whole entire creation of the video. So that usually includes not only either if it's a sex act, it'll be like sort of the cost of that sex act. Uh, if it's more fetishy, less explicit stuff, it's usually uh, like 10 to $20 a minute or like maybe it's like, you know, 125 per model for 10 minutes of video. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how the pricing structures work a little bit. And then I add a little bit for camera work and a little bit for editing. Mm-hmm. And then they pay me the price. I don't start shooting the video until I've received the full amount. I shoot the video that they asked for. My thing is, is as much attention to detail as possible, which for some reason, a lot of producers seem to struggle with. Uh, for me, it's very easy. <laughs> it's written right there. Like just do what they ask for. But anyways, yeah. So that, and then uh, when the video is done, it gets edited, then it gets uploaded to a file sharing service. And then I share the file with the client and then I chase them down until they tell me what they thought of it. (laughs) (laughs) Usually they get right back because they're very excited. They're like, this Mm. is the best thing ever. Thank you so much for making it. (laughs) So that's really fulfilling. Are you making them in your home, in a studio? Who's doing the editing? Who's like, is this an you mentioned your husband earlier. Is he part of this whole production team? Is it all in-house or do you have to send some of it out? Yes, very lucky and blessed. So my husband, (laughs) it's all in-house. In fact, it's really nice because I can write off a lot of my rent because I Mm. use this space to make my productions, um, you know, nine times out of 10. Every once in a while, I'll be like, I'm sick of shooting in this bed. Like, let's just get a freaking hotel room for a couple nights. Um, Mm -hmm. Or if I'm traveling, sometimes to work with other models, we'll get an Airbnb or a hotel room. But otherwise, uh, I shoot everything in this space. I make everything in this space. And then my husband is the camera person. Unless he is in the video with me and it's not a POV thing, then we hire someone else. Um, What's a POV thing? Oh, POV is point of view. So what that means specifically in porn is that the person holding the camera is also engaging in the sex. Hmm. So yeah, that's POV porn. So it's like, sometimes it just means that I'm looking at the camera and talking to the camera as though it's the person I'm making the video for. Like sometimes that's all it means. Other times it means that I'm still looking at the camera and pretending that's the person who ordered the video, but it's my husband's body Mm -hmm. because he is the only male that I have sex with on camera. So um, if someone wants to see a boy or girl sex scene with me, it's going to be with me and my husband. Mm-hmm. And so it can be really sexy for people to be able to like put themselves like their own mind into the body of the person that I'm doing the, the thing with. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's POV porn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I imagine if you're having sex with your husband on camera, it, it is going to be some, 
performative stuff because you're angling your body for the camera and all of that, but you're probably still having some amount of the same pleasure you would have when you're having personal sex. Is that true? It's interesting. And I, I mean, I think it's, I think it changes. I think it comes and goes in waves sometimes throughout my life experience of, and the experience of being a, a sex worker and making videos in that way. Sometimes there are times when, and this is regardless if it's my husband or uh, another partner or whatever, really, it's sometimes it is extremely stimulating still, sometimes maybe less so because I'm very concerned, especially if, if I'm making my own productions, my own co customs. I'm so, there's this little thing living inside of my brain that's like, okay, you need to make sure that you said yeah. these lines. Did you get that angle that the customer asked for? Like, how's the lighting here? Is it, all those little things, you know, if so, if someone else is shooting, if it's me and my husband and, and someone else, so someone else is doing the camera work in my mind, I'm just, are they getting those angles that were really important? Like I pointed them out to yeah. them. So are they getting those? Like if I see the person not moving very much, I'm like, in my head, I'm like, okay, do I stop and say something like, uh, so it's a lot going <laughs> on in my brain and, uh, I can get in my head a lot and that, mm -hmm. that can absolutely, I don't want to say it takes the pleasure away, but it almost like dulls the senses totally. because I'm so much in my head thinking about the production aspect of it that I am less in my body. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good way to answer that question. Yeah. I think that's a great answer. So are these custom videos your primary income now? Well, yeah. So that, that's definitely the, that shift that I was talking about before. Like, so I did go to making custom videos and then it was like, now my job is more focused on producing these videos and everything that goes into that. And then like connecting with the customers and the clients and everything that goes into that. I mean, that's my email inbox is a treacherous place. <laughs> <laughs> it is so full. I, I mean, I probably have some custom requests in there going back to like July or August um, mm. because I do so many things. So, you know, where's the primary form of income coming in? I mean, it's almost like there isn't a primary anymore. So I've got my OnlyFans. I have two clip stores, many vids and clips for sale. So I create all these custom videos. The person who's paying me to produce the video is getting exactly their fantasy and the thing that they want to see in a video. And that's what they're paying for. But I own the rights to the video. It's my creation. Hmm. So I take all, the, all those videos and that's what I, and I'll sell those in my clip store. They can pay for a video that's exclusively theirs, but it costs three times the price. So I haven't had anybody take me up on that, mm -hmm. which is good because content is, uh, honestly, it's more valuable than cash mm -hmm. um, at this point in my career for sure too. I also create full length feature films that I sell. I distribute through Trouble Films and um, they're for sale on my website. And then they also go up on sites like Adult Empire. When they sell through there, I make a very, very, very small fraction <laughs> of the price. <laughs> But selling them through there also means that I can submit them for nominations for like AVN awards and things like that. Oh. And so while it's slightly unrealistic to think that I would win one for one of my productions because they're just very low budget and I'm up against studios that have like 
crazy high budgets, you know, like mm-hmm. Wicked or something like they have like $20,000 cameras. Oh. Mine was not cost that much, but, <laughs> um, and things like that. And there's a whole crew of people that can do sets and can do specific types of lighting and make these really inc- beautiful, like cinematic porn movies. You know, I don't have access to that stuff, but it is good to be nominated just to be seen as like, okay, this person is still producing, this person is still making things like, and they're making stuff that's at least quality enough to get a nomination. So that's, that's nice. And, and so that is why those movies will end up on those sites. And what else? Like I have my stuff up on, uh, adult time has like a streaming type of service that you pay for. So the more time people spend watching the videos that I have up there, that's how I make some money. So I get money from there too. So, and then I still go and I do performances for other people. And those days are actually kind of nice because it means I can just show up and do the performance <laughs> and leave and not have the yeah. homework. But uh, the homework is always looming. Like it's mm-hmm. always there. It's just, <laughs> am I going to attend to it today or I'm going to put it off for someday where I feel more like doing it? Like that's yeah. kind of the little dance that we do here. But, <laughs> mm-hmm. but the payoff is grand. Now, you know, when I was just getting paid for my performances, like my performance fee, it was nice. I, you know, made a decent living. I could take vacations and travel and stuff, but it was not growth financially. And so being the owner of the business, now I can make, you know, we, we don't make residuals. That's another myth of porn. People (laughs) think somehow we're making residuals off of these movies that we were in, not at all. If I perform for another company, I get the performance fee and that is the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that I own my own content, you know, a clip that I made five years ago, I could still be making a little profit off of it here and there. Mm-hmm. But it's really about having like all the clips. Like I think I'm almost at around a thousand clips in my clip stores. Wow. Um, and so just having that big catalog is like, it just keeps a certain amount of money comes in every month from each of those places. And so it's really just having my hands in all these little baskets. And that's what I try to tell people who are just getting into this type of sex work as well is like, please don't just have an OnlyFans and then quit every other job and then be like, well, I've got enough money on my OnlyFans to to sustain Mm -hmm. myself. I just don't think that's smart because we already know that they can cut us off whenever they decide to. And I, I, I think that, you know, people need to be prepared for that almost inevitability, maybe not quite, but just knowing that that could happen at any time. We have to prepare ourselves with with other contingencies. And so at least like I knew when they said that, I was like, well, it's going to be a big cut to the money I have coming in, but it's not going to devastate me in my life. So So I want to ask a question that may be delicate. I'm not sure. You told me you're 38. You look 39. You look like you're in your earlier 30s. Um, Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But this kind of work, I imagine, has some type of age cutoff. So how do you feel when you look toward the future? What are you imagining? Well, uh, so I do. I I, uh, also identify as a stoic um, which is a philosophy that's like very grounded. And I am extremely, I'm like hyper aware of the fact that my life can end at any moment. So 
I have this thing where I do try to have wavy, flexible plans ish mm-hmm. for the future, or like maybe ideas of where I might go with things when I find myself coming up on certain situations. But I don't have these plans of like, first, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then that's going to happen, and then we'll do this, and then I'll die. (laughs) Good life. So I more just kind of think about directions that I might float towards. And like I started payrolling myself a few years back. So I started a 401k. I've had a Roth IRA for a few years before that even. As far as a, as a career, though, if like I reach a point where I physically and or mentally am not able to do this anymore or not able to really capitalize from it due to any number of factors, although they do make gilf porn, okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think that there's absolutely no reason that I couldn't shift a little more towards not being in the productions as much anymore. You know, my husband and I can always just focus our energies more on hiring other people and making clips that just involve other people and not myself. And Mm -hmm. I I can see myself pretty easily uh, sliding into that if and when the time arises, if I'm lucky enough for that time to arise. wish your brain would stop yapping and making grocery lists so you could focus on pleasure and even having an orgasm? It's actually a pretty common complaint. We ask a lot of our brains to be efficient, effective, organized, and to never drop any of the zillion balls that we're carrying. But then we also expect our brains to automatically switch off when it's time for pleasure so they don't distract us. Unfortunately, for most of us, it doesn't really work that way. So whether it's you're carrying the mom's mental load, ADHD, keeping up with the big project that's due next week, or any of a million other reasons, we need to help our brains learn how to relax into pleasure. We may even need to teach them how to feel pleasure. All of it is possible, and it's useful to have a guide who can see the bigger picture and help you navigate all the pitfalls that your brain has put in place, trying to keep you safe from having to change. I would be honored to be your guide toward a more deeply fulfilling, intimate life. I'm queer, kinky, and non-monogamy friendly, and I'd love to talk with you on a free discovery call. So visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching to schedule yours. Again, that's a free discovery call to find out if we're a good fit. And you can schedule it at leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That link is in the episode description on the app you're listening in now. Back to the show. What would you say to people who subscribe to the myth that anyone who is in sex work is there because they're so desperately damaged? Yeah. Or they're being trafficked. Ah, well, the traffic thing, I mean, 
we have these organizations that did a rebranding because they they saw the change happening, the sort of cultural shift, and they realized that they couldn't call themselves morality and media anymore. Mm. They had to change their name to trafficking. Yeah, yeah. Let's stop trafficking. It's all trafficking. Everyone's being trafficked. And so if you're looking at porn, you're looking at people who are being trafficked. And, you know, that rebranding is uh, extremely problematic. In fact, I find it somewhat misogynistic because then people are sitting in their ivory towers telling me what I desire for my own body and self. And um, you are shutting my voice down in order to amplify your own voice, which makes a lot of assumptions about people that you have never met. You know, that's just a small snippet of how I feel about the trafficking rhetoric and how it's being used as a weapon. But to those people who think that, you know, everyone who would engage in something like this is severely damaged or has, you know, uh, just absolutely must have childhood sexual trauma. I think, you know, if you took a survey of every human being, let's, let's just say in this country, you would find that most people have some kind of sexual trauma in their, from their youth. And while it does seem to skew slightly higher for people in sex work, that still doesn't make it a rule across the board. But it also doesn't mean that if you've experienced that sexual trauma, that then you are a damaged and broken person for the rest of your life. I think a lot of people can and do often work work through, work with that trauma as a part of their story and their lives. And that doesn't always have to inform what they choose to do and what they're comfortable with doing, what they like doing. And stuff like that. So there's, there's that. There's also that I can speak for myself that I didn't have that experience. That's just not a part of my story. Yet this all appealed to me at a pretty young age, regardless. Yeah. And I, I don't like that people will tell me that my own story, that my own truth is invalid. And I'm just one person that, you know, I know so many of my, my colleagues who also don't have that history also don't appreciate people speaking on their behalf and making assumptions about their reasons for doing whatever type of work they want to do. I think it's just a really unhealthy view of sexuality in general. I mean, you're, that's someone who is coming to the table with already all of these ideas in their head about what sex is, what sex should be, what it should be for other people, I think it's misinformed. I think it's unfair. I do wish always when it comes to sex work that people would be willing to listen to us without trying to make decisions on our behalf. Because a great example of this is when the SESTA-FOSTA happened a few years ago. So that was, I believe it was 2018. The bill came in to Congress and all but two voted for it. And politically, I can see why Congress people felt that they had to vote for it. Who wanted to be the one that the right could say, look, they didn't even vote to pass the trafficking thing and make right. a big deal out of it. 
oh, you are, you support sex trafficking then, I guess, you know? Mm -hmm. So I understand why they politically were almost like put in that position of having to, but as they were writing up this legislation, they didn't talk to any sex workers and what the legislation. So, uh, FOSTO's fight online sex trafficking act and SESTA was stop exploiting exploitation, sex trafficking act, something like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> but what it, what that did is it made, it made it so that online spaces that sex workers would use to vet clients, to communicate with each other about clients, to basically the most, all the harm reduction, all of those spaces were immediately shut down when that bill passed. And all of us sex workers were like, this is terrible legislation and it is going to cause it's dangerous. harm. It's dangerous. It's going to cause massive harm on several different levels. People will die and are dying because yes. of this legislation. And here we are in 2022 and we now have several years to look back on. And John Oliver did an amazing mm. segment on sex work. Amazing. You can watch it on YouTube. Please I will do. put links to all of these things, including an explainer about SESTA FOSTA. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, and so now we have the research to look, look back and see all the ways that it has caused more harm and the ways that it has made even detectives who are working on actual trafficking or actual child abuse have fewer resources now. Mm -hmm. They are following routes that they normally would and hitting a wall. Whereas before, they would be able to follow this through to stop someone who's actually being trafficked. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I read somewhere that even the person who, one of the people who helped write this legislation because they wanted to make things better for people who had been victims of trafficking, is now looking at it and saying like, I can see how this went wrong and I wish I could change it. Mm. If they would have invited sex workers to the table when they were writing the legislation, I can almost guarantee we would not be having the same problems, yeah. but we are often completely ignored, spoken over, spoken for without any consultations as to like the actual what our lives actually look like. People just glom onto this picture they've got in their heads and then think of that as though it's fact and true um, without even considering to just speak to us. Like we are smart. We are business people. We are thoughtful and intelligent. And like, you know, when you just dismiss us as dumb whores, then we're missing out on evolution really as a mm. society in my opinion yeah that's so beautifully said thank you <sighs> i also want to say that sesta fosta has affected people in my line of work as educators our spaces are not safe to do education work because yeah. it's being conflated with pornography <sighs> which is fucking insane. And yeah. I actually, I haven't gone back to look at the terms of service recently, but I don't know, maybe six or eight months ago, I looked at Facebook's terms of service around adult content, uh, or maybe it was meta. I don't know. So one of those. <laughs> and it was the villains of the story. The basic 
lesson was, we know it's important to talk about exploitation of people sexually. So we're not going to stop that. But anything that depicts pleasure of any type, we can't get behind that. So what that does is it means that all that we see on social networks that has to do with sex is about exploitation. It's about trauma. It's about people being taken advantage of, which only creates more fear. And more trauma. Yes. Absolutely. It's just infuriating Mm. that social networks have, for the most part, I mean, you know, Twitter is still letting me post the the porn, but I'm also like (laughs) shadow banned to oblivion as well. Mm-hmm. Well, that thing that they claim to not do, like, no, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I've seen the numbers. <laughs> you yeah. do it. But, but I mean, at least it's still an available space for promotion. But it's like, I got kicked off Facebook when I would put, po- I'd post pictures of myself in a bikini. Like everything mm-hmm. is covered. I made a separate account for my adult personality that got shut down. I made a, I made a page. For my adult personality, that got shut down. And when that got shut down, they also canceled my personal account as well. (gasps) Oh, my God. And it was just, nope, sorry, we made our decision and you can fuck off. I'm so grateful that I left Facebook in 2018 um, for a variety of reasons. And my life instantly got better. (laughs) Like, (laughs) But all that being said, that in these online spaces, we can't even take an educational approach or an academic yeah. approach. Trafficking a little bit is fallen out of favor a little bit. So now they're talking about grooming. It's mm-hmm. always the children. Children are always used to push conservative agendas, especially when it comes to sex. Mm-hmm. And just teaching children about their bodies, teaching oh, yeah. them the proper terminology for their body parts empowers them in so many really powerful ways to make boundaries around their body to not succumb to some things that are easier to easier to succumb to as a child when you don't have knowledge it doesn't just empower them although that's a huge piece of it it literally reduces the amount of assault that happens. Exactly. Um, like we have the uh, numbers to, we have to prove data. this. Yeah. yeah. Um, a colleague and I wrote an op-ed for NBC News on exactly this topic. And I'll yes. link that in the notes as well. It's just, oh, I think we could probably talk for another six hours just I know, I know. <laughs> on how frustrating all this is. I know. Um, yeah. So Sin, can you Tell people where to find you and I'll make sure that all of that information is also in the show notes. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. So if you are interested in the stuff I make, um, I'd say sin-sage.com is a really great place to start. Um, I've got information about custom videos there. I have links to all my stores. I have photos and interviews, lots of interviews and podcasts and things like that. So you can find a lot more Sin Sage stuff there. I mean, you know, I do all the things. So (laughs) Sin, this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for your time and for being here. Again, just my pleasure. Uh, I'm so grateful. So thank you for letting me have this opportunity. That's it for today. 
Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As a sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. If you have questions or comments about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Full show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. And you can follow me at Good Girls Talk on the socials for more sex positive content. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash good girls. While listening to this show is free, producing it is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I'll gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Until next time, here's to your better sex life.